0: Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here with your weekly episode of Ranching Reboot. This week's guest is a good friend of mine from up in the northwest part of Kansas. He's extremely passionate about soil health and regenerative agriculture. So buckle up and let's take a ride with my good friend, Michael Thompson. So Michael, how are you doing today? All right, just got in from building some fence. It was pretty uh, sticky
1: outside. We got just about... Uh, not to wet the concrete last night, and across the state line in Nebraska, I got about a half inch. So I was up where we got half an inch, and it was just steamy. It was pretty terrible building fence. So I'm not too uh, not too bad about you know I wasn't too uh, <laughs> tore up about coming in at three and to uh, to have a nice cool drink and to uh, sit here for a little while in the AC. So <laughs>
0: that's kind of why I've been scheduling these in the early afternoon, mid afternoon in the summer to give us all a nice. Give us a break at least once a week. We were just talking about the weather. Um, we had about 20 hundredths of rain here yesterday, and it, was, it wasn't it was even 85 when I was headed back. That's what my Jeep said, but when I got in, I was just covered in sweat. It's just hot and steamy and gross out there. So are you getting some rain?
1: Yeah, all in all, we've been getting rain. It, it, it hasn't been perfect, but um you know we've been front loaded we got a lot of rain in may and june and july we've got just enough rains that we haven't hurt yet but uh with this heat and stuff we'll be needing another rain or two i think before long because things are starting to you know go backwards a little bit so it'll be what it is we've got subsoil but the top foot or so um you know we've just used the grass and, and crops have really used that moisture in the top foot again so we're needing to uh, we're needing to get another another inch or so you know to really help us along so
0: i think we could all use a rain so tell us um i guess let's let's back up to kind of the beginning and let's tell a little bit of the story of michael um where are you from where are you at now and how did you get a to b
1: okay um <laughs> it's it's kind of a, a winding road that i had it wasn't just a straight journey so far from the time i left high school to uh to now but uh oh well i guess to start out i, I grew up on a farm uh, in norton county kansas which is four counties from the colorado state line and we're right against nebraska i'm literally two miles from the state line in nebraska so we're up here in what what is the start of what we term northwest kansas uh growing up in Alabama Amina. I was the son of a school teacher and a farmer. And my dad was a farmer. He had a few cattle and stuff, Uh, had a lot of pigs when we were growing up. So we were pretty big in the pig farming. So uh, growing up, that was kind of my duties to help him out with the the pigs. And we did a little bit with the cattle. We only had probably about 25 head or so back then. So uh, we're pretty big into the pigs for quite a while. Uh, In the mid nineties, prices on pigs kind of when all the went all the heck, and we decided that it wasn't enough fun that we were going to lose money. It was kind of the get big or get out and we decided that we didn't want to keep you know losing money or working as hard as we were with the pigs and a lot of our facilities we still did a lot of outdoor and and dirt type hogs we didn't really have them in a lot of confinement we did have a farrowing in confinement but that was it and everything else was outside all of our market hogs were and the like and, and all of our dry sows were outside so it was kind of uh, spend a lot on infrastructure or kind of get out and so dad at the time I was in high school and he saw that my brother and I were both probably going to leave within the you know five to seven time five to seven year time frame so he was going to be shorter on help anyway so we decided we just get totally out and we, we sold the last hog in, I think, 1995 would have been the year we were totally out of hogs. Um, so by 1996, 97 was when I graduated. And by 96, 97, it was pretty clear that mom was setting me down and telling me, you know, don't come back to the farm. Our farm's not big enough. Uh, you know, you're going to have to set out and find something else to do because farming's probably not in the cards for you. So uh, ended up going to Votech. Uh, I was kind of convinced that uh, I was in a really, really smart class. We had four valedictorians, and uh, I graduated second from the bottom of my class with a 3.8. So that kind of tells you everything. But where I graduated low in my class, so to speak, they they said, well, you're probably more VOTech material, you know, college material. So uh, not knowing any better, I ended up uh, going to VOTech. And I thought that, you know, I still had the passion to farm, so I got into diesel mechanics, uh, did that. Came back with the intentions of working for a local dealer. Um, As things would have it, I actually worked for a neighbor. Uh, He started. He needed a mechanic, but he also did water well drilling as well as farming. So I got my kind of fix as being a hired man for a few years and doing a lot of water well drilling and learned a lot about the water table and aquifers and geology and stuff from drilling these. So that was kind of a cool gig. Um, Did that for a couple of years. Uh, then by, uh, some freak. Uh, chance, I, I happened to uh, my mom worked at the school, and she asked me if I wanted to get a job as a paraprofessional helping this little visually impaired child. So I did that for a few years, uh, two years, and then I had the superintendent of schools telling me I should go back and get my four year degree and become a teacher because he needed a they needed a early ed teacher, and then they were looking at getting a kinderg- or needing a kindergarten teacher. So I went back and got my degree, uh, came back home to Almina. You know, I grew up, uh, started working in the same district with my mother, which was an interesting thing that my mother was also my uh, my colleague as well. So that was kind of interesting, but it was also an interesting dynamic that a lot of the teachers that taught me. I was now their colleague. I was no longer their student. So that was an interesting dynamic, but it was fun because I knew a lot of the, the, the staff I, I knew them well from, from going through their classes. And, and so it was kind of like a homecoming. Uh, the thing that it did give me was with the teaching schedule, I had my weekends and my nights free. So much to the chagrin of my mother, I, uh, I started uh, farming. I uh, bought a piece of ground there when I was finishing up with, with college the very first year back uh, last year at college, I bought the ground, I closed on it, and then I started, uh, started farming it. Um, so I did that for nights and weekends for about 11 years. Uh, also got my master's degree as a reading specialist. I thought I was going to do uh, title one reading in our school district. Uh, I uh, didn't end up doing that because I enjoyed teaching kindergarten that whole entire time. So I taught kindergarten and uh, did that. But I have my weekends and my nights free. So uh, basically, with a little bit of ground that I had, we really didn't have enough for me to be a full-time farmer. But dad was like, well, we do have enough grass and everything else that um, maybe, you, uh, maybe you can run some more cattle. So I started getting cattle. Uh, we started just increasing the herd, just saving a lot of heifers and, and building the herd slowly. um and when was that the farming i knew that the way we were farming with uh I guess you could call it kind of minimum till but we were still kind of a conventional till operation where we we do a really good job of planting our row crops our corn and our our milo at the time into wheat stubble but then it was time to go back to wheat we'd go get the disc out we'd fallow and we'd we'd do the disking and everything else and I knew that really wasn't working and that was kind of a it was it was a high input labor-wise but it was also high input with diesel and fertilizer and and you know we still had a pretty big chemical bill too so I knew that was wasn't working so I guess uh with the growing of or seeing that we could grow more cattle on the operation uh we started doing a little bit of subdividing on our pastures and then everything that was fallow we started putting um Crops and uh, basically a lot of sorghum-based crops in that summer time frame, and still getting it back to wheat. Um, the wheat wasn't like it was with summer fallow. We did take a little bit of a yield hit, but we were getting a lot of you know we we're getting a lot of bonuses of having that extra forage out there. Uh, we first started just raising it as forage with a lot of hay, uh, and I'm not a one to run a swather and a baler. That's one of the tasks that I really despise. I still to this day, if I don't have to, I don't. But uh, uh you know, we did do a lot of bailing early on. Uh, so it was starting to work in the fact that we had a living road a little bit more of the time, but it really wasn't working in the fact we were re- removing all that biomass off the top of the ground so still in the fall our ground would be pretty hard when we go to drill wheat and stuff so we'd still have some of these problems so i guess that that's kind of where we are foray into grazing and, and and we got into cover crops even more uh, i was tired of hard ground and watching we still had even though we went no-till we still had a lot of ditching and when we get big rains it would end up you know, in the ponds or it end up in the ditch or, or it make huge ditches that we'd have to go out and, and either push in with a blade or work in, you know, so we really felt like our soils still weren't where they needed to be. So that's kind of how we got into the diverse cover crops or diverse cover crops, you know, uh, plugging that into our farming operation. So,
0: so it's interesting that you said you got out of pigs around 1994, because that was, uh. Let's see, I just started high school around then and I was working for a neighboring farmer and he had he had some pigs and I remember having to clean out the fairing house one hot June day. And after that I really didn't like pigs very much anymore. And the rest of the <laughs> summer he complained about the price of hogs, and then when I showed up for work the next summer, there were no more hogs. That would have been that would have been that same exact time frame. Yep.
1: Yeah, there was a there was a pretty mass exodus about that time frame. A lot of guys either they did build a lot more buildings and got into hogs pretty heavy, or you know some of the people that were you know medium sized just decided that they'd get out. You know it was one of those either get big or get out, and there was a pretty mass exodus there in the early nineties. I've heard i I've talked to a lot of people from across you know Kansas, Nebraska, even in Iowa, a lot of those regions. That kind of that kind of really was a time when a lot of the small hogs left the farm. You know the smaller smaller hog operations left the farm at, at that time period. So I guess the caveat of that is. Is that freeing up that you know, freeing up that time. We actually decided that instead of building the buildings, you know, using the money to build the buildings, we actually went and got a loan to actually buy a little bit more grass. So I guess I wasn't real clear on that, but we did get a little bit more grass so that we could run a few more cattle because we really thought cattle was probably more toward, you know, more suited to our environment and more suited with where we were headed in the future. So uh, we still do have a lot of good neighbors that uh, they, they went the route of getting into, more hogs and so we've we've actually had the availability lately of using some of their hog manure as a a nutrient source for some of our farm ground. so that was kind of interesting on the soil health journey too about a a carbon source and you know it, it it did kind of uh, do some things that we, it surprised us. It was on some pretty poor ground that was pretty new to no-till that we took over that had a lot of um, plow pans and a lot of compaction layers in it. And they did go out with a a no-till coulter. It was a coulter type machine that injected it into the ground, but it had a coulter in front, a a small injection blade in the back. And really after they injected that, um, we were still having a lot of ponding and terrace channels and a lot of runoff in that ground. And, after we had that injected that really has helped that we don't have the uh, runoff that we had and it's actually helped a lot of the porosity of the ground the the ground's got a lot more it looks a lot more like a sponge now than it ever used to so i attribute that a little bit to getting more mic. you know getting a getting a source in there for microbial activity and then also the the other side of things is is getting a uh, you know getting a carbon source in there that you know kind of kind of helped hold the uh, hold the ground out, hold the ground more porous and, and get a little more airflow into our soils too so uh the crops it's just our first year we're into it but our our corn crop after this looks pretty fantastic so it's been a been a pretty good system you know so
0: so we're I'd kind of like to back up and say and ask you how you got started down the path of soil health and regenerative agriculture. Because it sounds like, you know, I know you're kind of one of the pioneers, especially in your area with incorporating cover crops and grazing and bringing, bringing cattle back into a cropping system. And so it, it kind of almost sounds like these are things that you've just kind of stumbled on along the way and and, and put things together. How How did you come about learning... About the, these principles of soil health and regenerative agriculture.
1: Well, I guess that all kind of dates back to when I had the talk with with mom. It was pretty much the talk with mom. Dad really, I don't think had the heart to tell me one way or another. You know that that I that I couldn't come back to the farm. He really wanted me back, but he knew that it probably wasn't going to work. So, mom was the one that kind of broke it to me and I think she even broke it to my brother. I'm not hundred percent sure if they ever had that talk too. But um anyway that, that we weren't that farming wasn't in our future. So I guess that's the that was kind of I guess looking back on it. If I can look back at my 18 year old self, that was probably the first, you know, kind of wake up call that I needed to do something different than what we were doing on our farm that, you know, um I'm not gonna say we weren't profitable. Uh, we always got our bills paid. We always had some left over but you know uh land loans if we ever had a land loan or any kind of any kind of loan it usually took the full full time period to pay it off we weren't ever ahead um we were just paying the you know paying it off a little bit at a time uh we had decent equipment we didn't have brand new equipment um you know just a lot of things that that we just were struggling i mean we weren't struggling struggling but we were doing as good as we could have and i guess that was the first thing that i kind of started knowing that if i wanted a place on the farm i was going to have to figure out how soil worked you know i was gonna so i i guess that that's where it kind of all fell together where i got back into college and everything um I couldn't, I, I didn't take the agronomy route. I took the, took the uh, teaching route. So I did hang out with a lot of people that were farming people or that came from a farming background and also working for a lot of other people uh, coming up through junior high and high school. I saw a lot of different ways of farming and kind of was experienced into a, kind of more of a continuous no-till type of farming. Uh, the, the only thing that was really holding us back at that point was uh, back in that time frame in high school from going no-till was that we didn't have a good enough drill and we didn't have a good sprayer so those two things and uh you know that just held us back and I guess that that's the very first thing that we started doing was I started reading about the soil and how the soil was actually functioning um a lot of uh early 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 works, um, you know, about what the country looked like before it was totally broken, uh, you know, before it was broke out and farmed, uh, before it was fully settled. A lot of those late 1880s, 1890s, 1900s type of accounts of first settlements of our counties, of Furnace County, Nebraska, and Norton County, Kansas. And you started reading about these settlers, and they were talking about what I knew as dry creek beds, And these weren't dry creek beds. They were actually full-flowing water that they were building grist mills, and they were building, um, you know, they were building uh, grist mills on them. They were building all sorts of – mills for milling lumber those kinds of things and i knew if that was happening they were actually flowing water year round and they talk about how they were decent water sources to water cattle out of or that you know the wildlife would have you know these these ponds and these puddles to water out of and they'd have flowing water in these uh, now dry creeks um they'd also talk about you know uh rainfalls and things like that uh you start seeing a, a totally different account of what they experienced versus what I was experiencing, you know, say 80, 90, a hundred years into, uh, you know, us breaking the the prairie up and farming it and overgrazing pastures. And I guess that I kind of knew that soil was more capable than what we gave it credit for of, you know, that it could hold more moisture, that maybe we could do a little bit better for our, for our ground than what we currently were. Um, basically I just was sick of watching it wash away all the time. You know, that was growing up. That was one of my jobs, uh- eight years old I was stuck in a four wheel drive tractor and the four wheel drive was, uh, was my job was to go out. I disc down all of the ditches or all of the places where we couldn't get across the ground to, to farm it. We'd go disc those, disc, those, you know, eros- erosions, uh, those ditch erosion places in so that we could get across and farm the whole thing, you know, without having to slow down for these, these wicked ditches and stuff. So, uh, you know, growing up doing that kind of thing, it really kind of, uh, just drove home that there's, probably got to be a better way or there's got to be a better system that we're just not you know we're, we're watching our soil just wash away and we're just you know it just wasn't wasn't working. So I guess that's how I got into soil building. I just started reading more about what the soil was like, uh, a lot of accounts of prairie soils, of what the prairie soils look like and what they're supposed to function like. I read a lot of books. Uh, there's a lot of things uh, that were out of universities in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s that were pretty helpful uh, about rooting depths, uh, about these early crops, about how they were growing them, you know, without any inputs about any fertilizers, uh, talking about organic matters of different soils, uh, what the soil kind of looked like and things that they were talking about. Dark soils were now light yellow clays, you know, that were highly eroded. And they were talking about the darkness and richness of the the clay loam soils and how they were rich and how they could grow, you know, 40 and 50 bushel, you know, 30, 40 and 50 bushel wheat back, back then without a lot of inputs. Um, you know, they were just living off of the, the soil building off of, thousands of years of of prairie and native vegetation and erosion hadn't taken its course really and and i guess that that's that's kind of how we got into it and then you know moving on through we've just tried to do more and more all the time about you know as we've been able to go no-till that left a little bit more moisture in our soil because we didn't work it all the time so we had a little bit more moisture to get those crops a little bit further along or to actually put some of these forage crops in and I, The first few years were the hardest, you know, trying to get over that hump. there were a few years where you kind of got into that, where you were using moisture to grow the forage crop. And then maybe you needed one more good rain to finish that weed out to make it a 50 bushel wheat crop instead of a 30 bushel wheat crop. But there were, there were some snags there, you know, early on, but I guess we just hung with it because we knew that we were using less for diesel fuel. We were using less on, on chemicals and stuff that we were seeing, you know, some, some benefits. Um, probably the first thing that we really saw that even dad noticed was that we were seeing that the ditches that used to be huge horrible ditches like i said that we either had to push in or work in uh they started going away they were depressions you know they weren't the jagged nasty ditches that you know we really had to do something with uh you know as they started to uh get better they kind of silt in and they were just kind of speed bumps or depressions you know that we could drive across and and today most of them are not the, the jagged ditches that we really have to worry about. They're just kind of a a natural, you know, flowing area where water can flow once in a while, but it's not the the jagged ditches that we used to have that we'd get horrible rainfall and it just make our ground rough. So I guess that was the first thing we saw was less runoff and less uh, erosion, you know, on our side hills and stuff. We are in a pretty hilly area of Kansas. We're not as flat as they are down in the central corridor along I-70 or anything. So uh, you know, our water, if it doesn't infiltrate, it runs down the hill and runs down into creeks and runs off. So that that was the the first things that we saw was we started to see that we could get a forage crop and still a cash crop. And I guess, you know, talking about yield, people probably wonder, you know, if you're only getting 30 versus 50 or 60 bushel wheat, how do you make it work? And it really worked because we started getting more cattle on the operation. You know, the forage really had a, had a place that we weren't spending money, uh, you know, when we were following, we were always spending money either Kim following or going out there and working the ground, you know, with diesel and, and equipment. And the equipment expense of the upkeep and maintenance on the equipment plus the diesel bill, um, it was pretty high. And then when we got into Kim following, Kim fouling the the chemical just seemed like you know it was pretty high. We ended up spraying more and more, and then you know moving from three or four sprays to five and six sprays. Sometimes there at the end when we were Kim it a seven or eight sprays, and they really weren't doing the job that they were doing that they should have done, and the ground was still getting rock hard before we planted. So we really kind of moved away from that Kim fallow, and that's really what pushed us down the the path of of trying to get more uh, you know, more cover crops out there on the ground for, for that cattle herd. So.
0: How big is your farm? Like how, how many acres total do you guys farm up there?
1: Uh, farm wise, we're about 2,700 acres. Uh, we've got about probably about 38, 3,900 acres total with, with range, range land included. Uh, that's, that's increased a little bit over the last few years. Um, uh, You know, we we try to grow when we can, but it's one of those things we're not really worried about growing bigger as much as now. I'm just we're trying to focus on doing better for the soil. You know, instead of, you know, so many times when you get a kid that comes back to the farm, uh, they want to grow, you know, buy more ground, buy more ground. And then, you know, more ground leads to bigger equipment, bigger iron. So. We're we're trying to do a little bit more of the other way. We're trying to farm about the same amount of ground, but we're trying to just do it that much better. Uh, like I said, this the 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 whole caveat to this is with cover crops. It's kind of a forgotten art because you know maybe. You know, talking with my dad, he can remember my grandpa doing some of this stuff with more more organically, like with plow downs and that kind of thing with tillage involved. But you know, he planted a lot more crops than we planted because I never knew anything more than wheat, milo, we did a little bit of corn when I was young, but it was basically wheat, Milo, fallow and a little bit of corn and we didn't plant anything else. Well, when dad was growing up, they planted oats and barley and a little bit of rye and they had uh you know more alfalfa. They had uh you know all these different crops that we I never knew anything about. So dad's kind of been the one that's kind of seen both sides of this he saw it go away when they started farming when he started farming in the 60s and 70s he got away from that went to a wheat fallow system uh you know more fertilizers and stuff because that was the way everybody was going and you know he's kind of gone back full circle now so he's sees a lot of these things he can remember growing a lot of these crops that were growing now and they even did some of this too you know growing up uh, they did some of this with the, the grazing opportunities out on on cropland uh, a lot of times you know it was that if the crop wasn't good enough they didn't have a lot of it. they didn't have insurance back then so if the crop wasn't good enough they ran it through their livestock with with cattle and hogs and that kind of thing with my grandpa's time and my dad's early dad's time is that's that was the way they you know kind of paid the bills if, if everything fell apart in a drought or something so i guess that you know kind of going off that that's kind of how work We've kind of gone back to that, the fact that, you know, with our forage crops, uh, I've really seen a, a, a way, you know, I, I hate to call them cover crops because if I'm taking them for a forage source, you know, basically they are kind of a forage, a diverse forage crop. But with the caveat of that being is I try to call them more of a cover crop still because we're only kind kind of grazing the top parts of the plants. We're leaving a lot of the stems and the bottom parts so that we've got an inch or two residue map laying over the soil uh, just basically because if we if we over basically you can kind of look at it as one way or another if you want the extra grazing days this year you're going to pay for it and yield on your following crops because every time we've tried to get those two or three extra days of, of grazing out of there uh, and we start seeing bare soil uh, we get things like w- more weeds uh, we get a lot of things like more evaporation uh, especially you know it starts hurting a lot more uh, we even see more compaction you know the longer they're out there on a piece of ground you know you start seeing more compaction if you don't keep moving them across the across the ground and and you kind of limit the amount of time they're in there so uh, I guess we're lucky in the fact that I've never we've never just tried to run them off cropland alone where we do have the grassland it's kind of the best of both worlds it's allowed our grassland Uh, we bought a lot of rented pastures in the last 10 years that have been Overgraze down to buffalo grass basically so they have needed the rest and recovery to get some of the different species of grasses going some of our taller grasses but it's given them the rest and recovery they need so they can grow a little more grass in our pastures but then on the flip side of things we've we've got something to graze out there on the cropland but then when the cropland's done the grasslands have recovered enough that we can kick them back on the grasslands too so it's kind of the best of both worlds we don't ever overgraze or try not to overgraze the cropland any because we've always known we've got grass to go back on and when the grass when we're out on grass we know on some of this cropland we've got some cover crops growing so that we can kind of negate you know having to overgraze our pastures as well so it's kind of a kind of a uh i don't want to say it's it's the it's the best system i just want to say it's a system where it kind of gives a redundancy especially in dry times that you know you can you can kind of still have forage ahead of those animals you know it's even in our really drought drought stricken times with with the way we're doing things we've been able to keep our cattle herd going you know with with having them on either a cover crop out on the cropland or out on grass you know during the dry time so um it's been it's been pretty pretty interesting to see uh the main thing now, uh, I, I've been following you a lot and trying to trying to get even better about, you know, learning about, you know, how to adequately stock grass because as we've got more grass out there, we're trying to find that sweet spot where we stock the appropriate amount and we don't understock that we have a whole bunch of, you know, unused, you know, unused grass or unused cover crop at the end of the year. But by the same token, I don't want to be in a dry year. I don't want to ever be on the other side of things where we're either, you know, where we're trying to, uh, you know, keep those extra tin head, you know, going and and where we really shouldn't have had those tin head on the property in the first place. So um, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's a constant metric that's changing. And I think that I really appreciate what you and some of these other guys have been doing with rotational grazing and with 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 uh you know with uh amp grazing and things like that. Uh because as we do give our grasslands rest, and as we give our even our croplands, you know, some time to to rest and to recover with these diverse mixes out there to kind of kind of um, solve a lot of problems out there we start seeing that our soils do change quite a bit. I I know that talking, talking to some, some of you guys that, that you've seen the same thing across your operation as well, that things that we always thought couldn't happen or, you know, things that we thought weren't as productive as, as we thought they should be. If we give them a little adequate rest, all of a sudden things blossom and we start seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of things happen that were out of the realm of possibilities five or 10 years ago, at least. so,
0: so, are you moving? Are you, Do you have your cattle at high stock densities or ultra high? Or are you just kind of somewhere well, down there, fairly low? Can we clarify
1: that too.
0: <laughs> I, okay. Yeah. So, like, nobody's really like written it in stone what high, medium, and no. low stock density is. Yep. Yep. And I would say that in, until you're about ten thousand pounds an acre on a daily move type system that that's not even where high starts like okay. you can you can start saying high stock density at around 10,000 but i think that a lot of us that have done it for a while would what all kind of agree you need to be up there around 20 to 25,000 pounds mm-hmm. an acre yep. on a daily move to really start to start seeing an extremely rapid change in your system so that's that's where the floor that i would put you know quote, ultra high would be at 20,000, or maybe that's the floor for high. We're
1: we're all over the board. I'll tell you that. But um, it kind of depends on our workload and everything else. Uh, This last year and stuff, well – To be quite frank, probably the last two and a half years, uh, going on three years now, I have twins at home. And the twins have kind of rocked my world in the fact that, you know, uh, (laughs) how much extra time I've had or how lack thereof of extra time. So I have probably not done as good about daily moves as I as I did before the twins, uh, with, with, and my oldest Thomas is at home too, but, uh, with the twins and COVID and my wife being a nurse and stuff this last year, I really have not done real good on some of our grassland about doing daily moves. Uh, you know, weekly, (laughs) weekly moves have been happening, that kind of thing. But I, I really, uh, you know, going back to say four or five years ago, uh, before, (laughs) before the twins hit, when I could do the daily moves on grasslands, uh, things that we'd see was immediately um it, it just really amplified things the 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 more you can uh I don't want to say mob the cattle, but the more you can give it, you know, subdivide and give it rest and recovery time, the, the most interesting things happen. Um, We'd see yellow sweet clover come back from places where we'd never planted it just by giving it some extra hook traffic and opening it up. uh, We'd see things that I didn't know what the heck they were, to be honest. You know, we never had seen like wild lupins and, you know, some of these wildflowers and stuff before I was like, what are these things so I had to I had to break out some some books I had to go get some range management books you know that showed you know wildflowers of Kansas and grasses of Kansas and I'm still getting better at grasses I I see a lot of different grasses out there but I'm not real good about you know outside of some blue stems and some 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 you know major grasses that we see all the time I have a real hard time discerning what everyone is you know i can kind of i'm just enough to be dangerous that i can tell but I, I do see now you know walking across the pastures where we've done a better job of moving and the rest and recovery on them we have a much better diversity of both like i said the wildflowers and some of those forbs in there but we also see a lot of diversity of grasses you know um the 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 thing that I've seen the most is when we change it up and we don't have the same rotation where we don't put them in the pasture at the same time and the same time of year for the same amount of time, you know, the same time period like we used to when we set stock, we start seeing different grasses come, but we also start seeing the species diversity change too because we always used to have a lot of warm season grass pastures that were overgrazed. There were basically a lot of buffalo grasses and a lot of, you know, undesirable so to speak in there but uh, a lot of those uh, grasses we're starting to see uh, a mix of both cool season and warm season grasses in the pastures now, that they're not necessarily just all going to one way or the other. They were either cool season grass pastures or warm season grass pastures. And we really didn't have anything with a mix or a diversity between. And now we're starting to see some of that, you know, some of that happen. And the more, you know, I'm hopeful in the next year or two, as my kids get older, that uh, we're going to be able to go back to doing a lot more with the, the daily moves uh it's just been really good for especially if you've got a lot of those pastures with say like the bottoms that have some marijuana started in them or you know those you know any type of kind of evasive brush or species the more that you can kind of kind of i don't want to say mob them up the more the more impact you can give those areas if you can just give them impact for you know even a few hours and get the heck off of them it's amazing how you know you don't have to use you know as many sprays and everything else that cattle will a lot of things people think are unpalatable that cattle don't like they will at least trample or they'll you know they'll they'll give a they'll give a browse over you know they'll kind of eat a little bit of the top of a leaf or something and then they'll trample the rest and it kind of is a way of, of weed control too that you don't have to spend quite as much time going out there and spraying uh we've even seen you know on like thistles before they'll eat thistle heads off you know and leave you know leave the thistle there but they'll eat the heads off because there's some kind of protein source or something they're craving out of that thistle head so some of those things that are crazy that you know and i know that this is probably kind of hard for some people that haven't seen it to do before but i'd say if you don't you know i heard this from other people you know people people like uh you know i Starting out, I heard a lot from your dad, Brian. You know, uh, I went to a few of a few of the conferences and, and uh, then times when he was talking, and he talked about how they st- how he started out with some stuff, and and then he'd show these you know grasslands how they recovered and how you had done it without you know spraying a lot a lot of you know a lot of things a lot of outside inputs you know that he was just doing it with with cattle and with some some fire and some different things, you know, different, different natural tools. And it really inspired me in the fact that I was like, well, you know, maybe we can do a little bit for our operation too, you know, and I, like I said, I I hope to get back to it a little bit more because there's a few pastures right now that I I think could really benefit to it that we've taken out over in the last few years that we really could take to a little higher level with that. But um, it's interesting. And I guess if it, it sounds too good to be true. Like when I first heard it, I thought that it wouldn't work in our area it's only a roll of poly wire and a few step in posts. I mean, it doesn't take you over a few hundred bucks of materials to try it. You know, I mean, literally 500 bucks, you know, get you a good energizer, get you some poly posts and some, you know, some, some wire and just do some subdivisions. Like even if you do it in fourths or something on a pasture, it's going to help some. So, you know, and the, the more intense you can do it, the better. So,
0: and probably every farmer, at least most of them that I know, they probably already have everything but the polywire and the step in post that they need to go do it. Yep. So before we get into talking about, you know, what are some ways that let's just say you're talking to your quote neighbors and what are some way what are some things and some ways that your neighbors could start transitioning from, you know, a, a regular conventional max tillage commodity crop farm to a more regenerative farm that's using less inputs and in diesel to grow, to still grow crops.
1: I'd, I'd say honestly, the the very first part that I would look at is probably just. Going out with a going out with a spade or going out with a loader or whatever and dig a hole in the soil and really start looking at your soil, uh, look at how many layers. If it if you see layers that look like somebody like the road bed, if there's any layers where roots aren't going down through those layers, if it looks like kind of like a compacted road bed, that that's a pan. That's a that's that's definitely a, a compaction layer in your soil.
0: But cattle, so you, grazing cattle did that, right?
1: <laughs>
0: did, didn't yeah. cattle cause that compaction layer?
1: yeah Um, compaction usually is more of a matter of of the amount of time they're out there versus the amount you know of cattle that are out there but in in my in my world at least but um, I think that a lot of times you know just going out there and seeing if you've got a lot of those little tiny layers if it looks like a kind of like a roadbed every few inches that probably means that you're not getting enough moisture in the soil so really that would be my first thing is like after a wheat crop would come off or after a crop would come off if you have like a little fallow period there like especially into stubble it's really an easy thing to get started into wheat stubble or into say you hate like uh oats off or you've cut oats or something in the spring and you've got that that summer window uh really just go in there uh something that I've liked that hasn't used a lot of moisture that they use a lot of in eastern Colorado is millets. Uh, A German hay millet, which is kind of like a foxtail millet. Uh, Proso millet, which looks maybe a little bit more kind of like a milo plant. You know, it's a little wider leaf, but it's a millet too. Uh, Both of those millets are very low water use millets, or low low water use, but they've got really aggressive fibrous root systems. So those will help in the top few inches of opening it up. Uh, Go with kind of like a sunflower or something With a kind of a deeper root. Uh, I use a lot of rapeseed on our farm, which is basically uh, low oil canola, uh, a high oil rapeseed is a canola plant. So um, the canola plant and what that might work in some of the people rotations further south, you know, like uh, Oklahoma, um, Texas, those kinds of places. I know some people have tried to move uh, canola into their rotations and it's got a really aggressive root system that will open up the soil. But uh, you can put a rapeseed in there, some millets some sunflower and maybe you know like a a a radish or a turnip if you're grazing if you're not grazing you still put it in because it'll hold on to some of those nutrients and nitrogen and and some phosphorus and stuff that's left over but just put that out there for a little while um and kind of let kind of let uh water be your guide because on the first few years you might have to terminate it a little bit early with either cattle or maybe a a spray pass or something, because the first few years, water is going to be your most limiting factor. So you're going to have to kind of really monitor. And if it's getting super dry, maybe pull the trigger that you've got a really good residue over the top of the soil and, you know, and go out and spray or, you know, go out and do like a flash graze. If it's really dry, just do kind of a flash graze over the top. Just do a real quick, you know, put quite a few cattle in, move them across the ground pretty quick and just get something out of it, you know, so that you can kind of recoup that seed cost, but just, just don't get too much wrapped up into it. Cause a lot of those millets and sunflowers and, you know, rapeseed, you're not talking like you're talking over about 15 bucks worth of a seed cost, you know, to get a pretty good residue. But if, if you can get the residue over the top of the soil and you start getting roots down into the soil, you know, that's where it starts. And You know, it's going to be like a couple year process. It's not just going to be a real, you know, a real quick turnover. Like I said, you're really going to have to monitor and. I'd say the first few years, if I was to err, I'd err on the side of leaving more residue out there. Um, Maybe it costs you a little bit upfront, but it's going to be given back to you in the next following crops because you're going to have less evaporation, and you're also going to have more infiltration because the more of that residue mat you have over the top of the soil, it's going to keep the soil cooler. It's going to keep microbes and some worms and stuff alive in the soil, and you're going to start seeing some of those things start happening in your soil so that when you get those bigger rains, they're going to start getting more rained in the profile. Because really, you know, um, under the way we used to manage it under fallow, we'd always want to see moisture clear up to the, you know, very top, basically, right where we were working the ground or where we were Kim following. And, you know, I I guess, you know, with – that's the mindset that we've got to change is that i don't want to see moisture on top of the ground i want it down in one two three and four foot in my profile because that's where the roots are going to get to it it's not going to be evaporated out of the soil you know if it hangs around in the top six inches or foot of soil um it's going to be evaporated or it's going to be you know it's going to in a dry time it's just going to be lost you're 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 just going to be farming in a flower pot basically so you know instead of looking like you're farming in a flower pot you really want to look like you're farming you know you're farming in the top six foot of soil instead of the top six inches. So the, the more you can get those root systems in there after wheat harvest, um as those cover crops or as these forage crops would be grazed off or die off the next following cash crops they're lazy they don't want to expend any more energy than they have to so they'll follow a lot of those old root channels down and so every year you're kind of building so maybe the first year you only get them down in the top you know say you were only getting them down six or eight inches the first year then you get it in down foot and a half two foot and you know pretty soon you're down. Two, two, three foot, four foot, you know, down into that profile where the, you know, even though it doesn't rain, you know, it, it, it will hold, the, the, the crops will hold on, they'll wait for that moisture a little bit further. So that's basically, it's an investment in your future. And that's the whole thing um that you're looking at you're kind of giving a little bit up front maybe with some grazing days or you're giving a little bit up front maybe a little bit of of uh you know a little bit of crop yield the first year or two but it's an investment in year three four and five or year 10 down the road you know that you're actually building a better soil that can take those bigger rains get them down into the soil and you know be useful for the following crops so um it's it's a little bit of upfront investment, but I found that it, it does kind of pay, especially in those freak weather events. Whether it's really really wet year or it's a really really dry year, if you've got that soil opened up, that it can take more of those rains, and you have more of a you know more of a profile, it buffers those extreme weather events. So,
0: so uh, you mentioned terminating a cover crop with cattle, and I've always been a little bit curious about that. I know it's possible. How do you do it?
1: Basically, that that's where it gets into, you know, if, if you're to do it, I'd say you definitely make sure that you've got a, a son or a daughter or you've got, a, you know, that you've got enough help to do it. But you really need to probably do pretty high-intensity grazing, you know, um, to move them across. You've really got to graze it. And I'm not going to say it's going to be 100% perfect, but, you know, that you're going to get a 100% perfect kill where you're going to, you know, go right back in and have a, you know, a dead brown mat to to work in uh that'll all depend i guess on on what time you're you know if you have frost on your side if you're doing a warm season you know mix and you've got frost coming up on your side if you graze it down for you know you graze it down and leave the residue chances are frost is you know you can plant wheat right into it the frost is going to take all those warm seasons out and you're going to have a really nice seed bed you know and you're going to have a little bit of you know that that sorghum sedan is going to give a little bit of a microclimate for your wheat that it's it's not going to just come out into you know open air or the heat or whatever it's got that you know some residue to kind of buffer those temperatures you know as that young plants emerging so it kind of helps you know weed emerge and that kind of thing too. Uh, since we've been doing it we really haven't had that, that ground be hard because it used to just set up kind of I'd equate it to a brick you know it would just get real hard we couldn't hardly get the drill into the ground it was so hard and since we've been leaving more residue on top of the ground I'm not going to say walking across it it feels like a sponge but when you walk across soil that's been managed uh, uh, you can kind of feel you can feel it under your feet there's some Um, give, you know it's got some springs so uh, i don't know i think that the the thing with terminating it is you've got to kind of have some poly wire out there and you've got to pretty much do a a daily move and you've got to kind of keep them keep them moving that you get enough of it, you know It works kind of like a a roller crimper, honestly. If you've got them out there, you know, at a high enough density, they'll, you know, they've got enough, especially, and I guess the other thing to take into account too, if you really want a lot of that residue in contact with the soil, we found the long, narrow paddocks work better than like a square paddock. The long, narrow paddocks seem like, you know, cattle always want to walk a fence or they always want to find their perimeters. So if you have a long, narrow paddock they'll want to walk back and forth it seems like a little bit more at least our cattle do i'm not going to say everybody's does this is just my experience on my my farm and my ranch but that our cattle seem to you know go around they'll find their perimeters but you know they'll always graze a little bit close to their water at first but you know they'll they'll go back and forth uh and it seems like those long narrow ones seem to get it in contact with the soil a little bit more than if we're to go more of a a square uh you know the square they'll get more fuel forage utilization they'll they'll graze it down but there won't be quite as much residue so i guess for me i'm not a good cattleman and the fact that that i'm looking at more of that as long as they're taking the tops or they're taking the best of it off i could care less if they're really you know if they're leaving you know two or three days worth of 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 grazing out there it's going to be residue that's going to help me cycle nutrients in the future and it's going to keep my ground cooler so i am giving up some grazing days because i have had some people stop by and they go michael you could have got two or three more grazing days out of this i go i know i could have but i said every time i've tried to get greedy it's come back to bite me you know and in either the the you know either the grounds a little bit harder because i've kept them in the ground kept them on a piece of ground too long they've done too much back and forth or you know they've taken too much and then the weeds come on or quite frankly a lot of times i've just taken too much and then when the sun beats down on it i lose it to evaporation so the more i can get kind of that roller crimper type of action you know and get more of a you know a residue mat it's going to cost me a little bit upfront front and grazing days but it's going to pay for me you know the next two years of, of weed control and also residue and also getting more moisture into the ground you know when we get those heavy rains that extra residue does slow those raindrops down enough that that it does help infiltration
0: so 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 let's let's talk about spraying versus grazing in a no-till type system are you still doing you're still doing a little spraying aren't you
1: oh yeah 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 we're still doing we're still doing spraying uh probably more than i'd like because uh you know as we as we move further through this um Something that's really been a no-brainer, I guess, in the way of spray, you know, a way of trying to eliminate spray tricks for me is the, the cool season, warm season, like a stack cover crop. It might be a little bit harder to try to get, another crop to follow that because you have used a lot of soil moisture in a stack cover crop. So I'll do like a cool season mix, like say a oat, pea turnip type of thing in the spring, graze that off in like that May, June time frame, and then turn right back around and try to follow that with some, depending on how wet or how dry we are. If we're drier, I'll probably go heavier on like those German and proso millets and sunflower, you know, so something that's a little bit cheaper um, that I don't know how much grazing i'm going to get out of it anyway so i'm going to fault on the side of being a little bit cheaper and just to you know ensure that i've got ground cover and i'm also keeping a living root out there and i'll still get some grazing out of it if we're a little bit wetter after that you know we get some good rains in in early june and i've still got moisture um, i'm more likely to probably put some forage sorghums and sorghum sedans in there um probably some more uh legumes uh maybe a cowpea or a mung bean uh soybeans if we you know a lot of times we'll throw the soybeans in if we've got extra soybeans left around you know some of these some of these uh crop you know cash crop dealers that they have soybeans that once they're done they'll let go for you know plot beans and stuff like that they'll just give you you know to put in a mix or something so you know it doesn't have to be expensive but a lot of times we'll we'll clean out some of that seed that we've got left over and just throw it in a mix like that but we'll put a warm season mix in and then that warm season mix would be like in that August, September time frame. maybe before we're ready to go out to stocks, we can do that. So, um, I don't know, you know, uh, that that will work for everybody, but it's sure a way to keep chemical down. Cause we've been able to go like almost two full years without a chemical application. So like, if we're going into corn stocks in the spring, we won't have sprayed that corn since the spring before. So that's already a year when we plant that oat, pea crop and then the op crop will just be terminated with cattle and basically the heat keeps it back so it doesn't come back after that and then that warm season crop comes on we can graze that out and then we won't have any chemical till the spring of the following year so we'll go basically two full years without any chemical application so if you're truly wanting to get a little way away from that spraying you can do that um, the main thing is i guess you got to be really flexible on your rotation which some guys are some guys aren't on their cash crops uh with us if we can get the opportunity to get a wheat crop in in the fall great if it looks like it's we've used enough moisture up with all these forage crops we can't get back the wheat we'll just let it recharge uh recharge moisture over the winter time and get right back into the spring with a, a row crop in the spring so that's kind of we leave it a little bit open-ended about what mother nature gives us for moisture so
0: how are how are you keeping track of that moisture Are you keeping detailed records or are you doing some soil testing and sampling and what others and if you're doing soil testing what other types of soil testing are you doing and why
1: okay um <laughs> that's kind of all-encompassing uh a few years back i actually did get some uh, moisture probes like what they use for irrigation to keep track of subsoil moisture and because i always i had you know we just do it off intuition you know you would know how much moisture was out there and that you know people would come up to me and say, well, how do you know how much moisture you're using and everything? Well, you know, after we'd had those in the ground, it really proved that, uh, we use moisture up with the forage crops, but it also prepared our ground for when we got the bigger rains. Like we got a, uh, we've got like two and three inch rains before. And instead of, you know, running over, you know, terrace channels, clear full
0: and causing a bunch in- of erosion, <laughs>
1: Uh, without the not having the erosion you actually have it actually infiltrate the ground because it's we've used some moisture but the mo- but if we didn't use the moisture the moisture the profile would be full and then it would just go to erosion but where we've used some moisture the ground's actually ready to absorb that so i'd say that you know um that that's one one tool that we've used in the past uh we use a lot of you know I use a lot of just regular soil probe, like a T-handle probe, just a regular soil probe to to assess how much moisture is in the ground. Uh, sometimes it makes me happy, and sometimes I, I kind of get a little bit nervous about, you know, moisture levels. But uh, I think overall, you know, we're seeing that uh, our, we've got more in the subsoil um, year in and year out with, with this system. Uh, the other thing with soil testing, um we really have kind of gone a little bit further away from like a conventional acid-based soil test where it's an acid-based extraction method where they just uh, soak the soil in an acid to tell you how much nitrogen and potassium and phosphorus you have in your soils uh, we have uh, done a little bit more with the the haney soil test which is a biologic soil test um, they use a very weak acid which is more like a citric acid which is you know found in fruits uh, which is more like what's found in rainwater so it's a little bit more like what the plant can assess after rain Um, sometimes I will give the caveat that sometimes our hainy soil results are not looking quite as uh, high as the acid extraction but that's because it's a weaker acid too so you know even though the the results don't look quite as high um, we haven't had a time where we've felt like our our Nutrients have been deficient. Um, And a lot of that's because the soil biology uh, basically is the microbes, the fungi, those kinds of things that are in your soil. They're, they're turning over nutrients. Um, You know, I think that's one of the biggest fallacies that I've learned uh, going through this is that growing up, we always thought we fed the plant directly. If we put the nitrogen on, the potassium, the phosphorus on, that we fed the plant. Like the the plant roots reach out, and they grab hold of this and just directly drag it into the plant, you know, that we're actually feeding the plant. And that's really pretty far from the truth because even in, you know— Even in the most abused soils, there's still some biology, and the biology is what's converting it. Uh, That's why in a lot of soils we're having to see that are more abused, that are lower organic matter. That's why you see a lot of those soils you need to put more nutrients on because there's not as much natural cycling going on because that biology, there's not not much biology actually living there working to cycle that. So the more you can keep that – Soil cooler with that residue, the more moisture because all these things are subaquatic; they need moisture to live, just like we need a drink once in a while on a hot day. They do too. So the more moisture we've got in that profile, the more that we can cycle those nutrients. So. What I'm saying is that even though we're not putting on as much nutrients, our nutrients still are going as far as they were before because a lot of this biology is creating a lot of plant-available nutrients, um, a lot of amino acids and a lot of um, extracts that the plant can get naturally through its root system that's available to the plant that helps it grow. Um, the soil can can provide that. So the further we go down this this route with uh, the grazing and getting more biology back into our soils and keeping that biology alive through those dry times or the, those those hotter times during the summer, the more we can rely on our soils providing without having to put extra inputs in. Uh, you know, our nitrogen, we've been able to scale back some on our nitrogen. Uh, potassium and phosphorus are two things we've really have been able to pretty much go away from on on almost every piece of ground that we've done this on for a long time, uh, mostly because a lot of these cover crops are keeping – keeping those things available. They're not as bound up in a lot of our calcium. We have pretty high calcium soils and can have higher pH soils in our area. So a lot of those nutrients can be bound up in those those chemical bonds. And if, the, if there's a living root out there and that biology is alive, not as much is going to be bound up in those chemical bonds. There's going to be more available to that plant life. So um, as we're going further down this road, we're seeing – just little things like that. Uh, that's kind of how you start paying the bills, you know, knowing that your nitrogen, like 40 units of nitrogen is going to act more like 80 units of nitrogen or, you know, 80, unit, 80 units of nitrogen on corn is all you need because, you know, you'll probably never hit top end yield because or top, you never top out the nitrogen level because you're having a lot cycling with your increased organic matter and also the increase in the, the soil carbon and the, the microbes that are feeding your, your corn crops. So Um, that's just kind of where we're kind of where we're at or what we've been doing
0: okay so let's just say i gave you a time machine and you could go back and and talk to yourself the day after your mom pulled you aside on the porch and said farming's not for you what would you what would you tell yourself
1: Oh, probably the first thing I would have told myself was, uh, you know, don't be so, you know, I was pretty hard on myself for a while there, you know? Um, but I think that probably the, the thing that I, I don't know, that I'd probably tell myself anything on, on that regard, because I think that I kind of beat myself up a little bit. It made me more driven to actually change. So probably the one thing that I would tell myself, if I could tell myself something from back then, uh, go get a drill, go get a sprayer and go no-till. You know, don't, don't put it off. Don't put it off, you know, another five years, another six years, you know, just, just do it today. I really wish we would have done that, you know, when I was a young kid, you know, or and even when I was in, in junior high, you know, that we would have had 30 or 35 years of no-till instead of like 21 years of no-till under our belt. But I think that that's about the, the one of the things that I would have said, you know, start no-till earlier. And probably the other thing would be don't be afraid to do the, the diverse forages and the cover crops. Uh, We really didn't get into those, you know, till the, Probably late, to probably about 2008, 2009, we really started playing around with cover crops. And I really wish when we would have went no-till that we would have started the cover crops right away. You know, if we would have started that in 2000, we would have got a lot more moisture into our soils, and it would have been a lot less hard. I think a lot more people would be successful with no-till if they had, like, diverse forages or cover crops in their rotation. So, um, you know, that's just... That's just uh, just my take on it, that, that, you know, a lot of the roadblocks that we had with our ground getting hard, uh, we had some chemical, you know, our chemicals stop really killing weeds because we were spraying just to spray. And I think that, you know, the more residue we can have out there and that kind of thing, the less we have to worry about. The less we have to worry about paying, our, you know, our bills aren't as high because we don't have as many trips across our fields, and we're really kind of farming more with in, within context of our region. You know, when we don't have to do extra tillage passes or extra spray trips across our ground, we're really farming a little bit more with the way our you know our native prairie ecosystem was was designed. You know, in the in the in the original intent of our soils. So,
0: so oh, okay. There are there any, uh, any big challenges you faced lately or any wrecks you've had you'd like to share and some lessons learned?
1: Um, I guess the, the, the major wreck I'd say was that, you know, go into it. And and really find kind of a mentor in your area if you can. You know, some some areas are a little bit harder to find than others. And your area might mean two or three counties away. Um, just try to keep it within your context that you know you find somebody that kind of fits your ideals of the way you're farming that you want to kind of emulate the way they're you know the way they're farming. Um, you know, like if you're a crop if you're a crop and livestock guy, really try to find a, a crop and a livestock guy to, to kind of follow. It's not bad to follow just a just a livestock guy, but the livestock guy can push things a lot harder because he's only going after the forage, you know, availability. Whereas if you're trying to get a, a cash crop as well. Um, which some people are moving away from, which is fine. But if you're trying to get a cash crop as well, you really can't, you really got to know how hard you can push the forage side of things and still not really ding your yields real hard on the cash crop side, because even as we improve soils, there's only so much water holding capacity and you know, there's only so much moisture that you've got in your profile. So you really got to be cognizant of that, I think, but really finding a mentor that's been doing these that can kind of share some of the roadblocks or the hurdles that they, have had um you know it it just shaves off a lot of your your learning time you're going to be a little bit faster out of the gate with with being successful the other thing i'd say probably is is also um is also probably uh you've got to you've got to uh you've got to probably find a find a happy medium with with how much moisture you're willing to use for your forage crops versus how much you know are you going to really push if you're wanting to push your crop yields you're probably going to have to terminate your forages earlier if you you know if you're really not you're able to get enough grazing days or, or compensate somehow with the cover crop you know that it pays um You know, maybe you can you can have a little bit less yield and still have the same amount of profit because you're going to have less spray trips, less fertilizers into it. So it's really about trying to make it work, you know, on your on your terms because everybody farms a little bit differently. So there's really no right or wrong way to do it. But I'd say really sit down. um, And I'd say the other thing was you just can't be rigid on your rotations you're really going to have to be flexible especially the first few years with what you're going to plant you know you can kind of have an idea of how many acres you want to certain crops but really different pieces of ground are going to need different management because they've all been managed differently with different forms of tillage and you know how much erosion or how how little erosion they've had how long they've been in into you know a no-till system versus how short they've been in a no-till system you know and it, it just really depends. It's all over the board. You really just have to go about it. And I'd say go in littles, you know, um, The biggest train wreck I think I've had recently was really buying into, you know, more is always better. You know, more diversity in your cover crops is always better, Uh, especially a lot of the things that aren't from our region or aren't really something that can, you know, thrive in a lower rainfall area. I've taken some stuff from, you know, guys that are further east to me that get a little bit more rainfall or more timely rainfall. And I found that some of those things fall flat. You know, further west. So I think that it's always good to find a find a uh, a friend that's maybe a little further west than you and kind of adopt what they're doing. And also don't buy into a lot of the, uh, you know, I'm going to say diversity is good, but you also have to find the diversity that works on your operation because you can have a 64 way blend. And if you don't see, you know, and you spend 60 or $70 on it, you're going to be burnt out after your first year on cover cropping because you're not going to be able to see an economic return on that blend. So I'd rather see a guy go out and spend, you know, maybe do a six or an eight-way mix and spend, you know, 15 20 bucks an acre on it, you know, or maybe $30 an acre if they're going after grazing, plant a little bit thicker. And, you know, go after the grazing, but have a more simple, simple cover crop and Go into it the way of making it pay, versus you know going out there with the idea of I'm going to you know take out all my compaction layers, I'm going to put a lot of legumes out there to fix all of my nitrogen and all my nutrient requirements, and you know I'm going to do this you know high end dollar cover crop, and then all of a sudden you know it still gets weedy and you still have a lot of problems. Then what do you do? You know I mean you're you've got to spray it out or something, and then you're you're out.
0: You know so you go get mad at your seed man because the magic bullet he sold you didn't work the first time.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think that, you know, that's the best thing that I can give is find guys that are doing it and see what they're doing. Don't don't discount a, a, a cover crop seed dealer or a seed dealer because they do have some knowledge for your region. But also, you know, really quiz them why they're putting certain things in or why you – why straight out of the gate you need this in your mix because overall, you're going to be the one that has to pay for that. You know, the seed dealer is going to sell his seed and once it leaves his facility, it's no longer his duty to worry about how it's paid for. So, you know, up front, I do a lot more reading and a lot more, you know, kind of, there's a lot of good resources on um, cover crop, you know, on cover crops and different blends and different things on the internet. So really uh, delve in there and really start talking to some of your neighbors, uh go to go to a cover crop field day because i'll tell you the 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 weirdest thing happened to me was i have a friend that is two years younger than me that went through high school and i didn't know what he was doing on his farm he he's only eight miles down the road, but I didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know what I was doing. And we happened to go to a cover crop field day. And here we were, I was like, Hey, that looks like Clint's pickup. And, uh, as soon as I walked through, yeah, there, they were, there he was sitting. And, you know, we were talking, we're like, I didn't know you did cover crops. And yeah, I've done it for a year or two and I've done it for a year or two. And, you know, we were both pretty new to it, but then we had our own little, you know, own little, uh, you know, group kind of a, a, a group of two to start out with. And then it became four five and six you know of people in our region and we kind of see what worked and what didn't bounce ideas off each other but you don't really know sometimes what's going on in your own area so either get out and drive around and if you see something freaky out there you know like what the heck's that you know mess of different plants out there go find whose ground it is and go talk to them you know if they're they're willing because most guys that are doing this are more than willing to share I haven't really found anybody that says you know this is proprietary knowledge I'll be darned if I'm going to share this with you most people are very willing and open to say you know this worked for me this hasn't worked for me and kind of give you some background when you're developing these things so you really don't get a lot of bang and and no you know bang for your buck or anything so uh, i'd say that you know those are the things to look at um, and really be cognizant um, there in my early days, I remember one time I spent forty-five dollars an acre on seed costs, which was very, very high. That was back when I was teaching, so I kind of got a little crazy and took some money out of a paycheck and decided that I'd uh, I'd, I'd come really, really give this piece of ground the uh, you know the works. Uh, we got good grazing out of it, and I did. I saw most of the species I planted not as thick as I thought some of the species should be because again, I was planting some things that were a lot wetter environments than what you know what we. We were planning into but I will say that the Haney score on that that where I spent all that extra money it jumped tremendously from the diversity so there are some things to be said for diversity but also um, underlying you've got to pay your bills you know day in and day out we've got to service our debt and pay our bills you know and I know there's guys out there that right now um, you know chemical and fertilizer and everything else they're literally drowning in a lot of bills and I really think if we are are a little proactive. Um, You know, we give up a few of those grazing days up front. We maybe leave a little bit more residue out there instead of bailing off our straw or bailing off the corn stover bales. We leave a little residue on our ground. We give a little bit up front this year. It's going to come back and help us in years two, three, and four. And I know that's hard for a lot of guys that are in a pinch. You know, they're seeing the real quick cash you know a real quick way to get a little cash but a lot of times bailing off all that stuff or taking all that extra residue off or getting that extra grazing to where it's just bare dirt it's really costing you you know in the future that you if you really give a little bit even though you're in a in a hard way up front it'll save you two or three spray trips next year and your inputs will be that much lower and the banker will be that much happier with you so um you know i just from a financial standpoint, I know there are guys right now that it it is a time where it hurts. Uh, recently, our bank went through; uh, our bank got bought out by a bigger bank, um, basically because we had some some people that were larger farmers that had some some credit problems, and um, you know we're a few we're one of the few farmers that are left in our bank just because you know there's a lot of a lot of problems right now with with servicing debt. as we've, we've kind of talked our banker through this, I think that's something else you've got to really sit down with your lenders and with, you know, with everybody, you know, and, and really get on the same page, you know, and tell them how you're going to pay for this and make this work up front. And really, you need to do the research up front and think how many grazing days you need to get out of this, how many, you know, uh, again, how many spray spray trips you can save with this, you know, Um really be proactive in trying to formulate a budget, you know, to to really uh, help these guys understand because a lot of guys, you know, uh, a lot of lending institutions now aren't real ag savvy, that they're getting less and less ag savvy as we go along. So you really need to tell them, you know, Every, you know, every time I go to the chemical dealer and buy a pickup load of chemical, you know, that's 10, 15, $20,000 that I could be spending on this diverse forage crop. And that's a one shot thing. I could maybe spend five grand on this diverse forage crop. I can run another, you know, I can keep my heifers and put extra weight on them or, you know, or background, you know, background some animals. I can, you know, maybe take my heifers up to, you know, bred heifers instead of selling them as just, you know, selling them, selling them as open heifers. Um, you know, I can do bread heifers. I can, you know, make this work and really walk through your banker about how to make this work, you know, because, uh, we've been really blessed that we have a really good ag, uh, a really good banker. Our, our, our loan officer is really ag savvy. Uh, he didn't grow up on a farm, but he grew up around us all the time. So he knows what's going on. Um, and he's really worked with us and been pretty proactive and understands the value of no-till once we've been doing it. And really, you know, it's, it's pretty cool that, you know, a a few times I've had, you know, local banks sponsor these field days because they see that this is a way to, you know, kind of have less operating expense and still have the same kind of, you know, the same kind of uh, living at the end of the day, you know, the same take home pay at the end of the day. It's just less, it's a less input intensive way. Um, Also during dry times, it helps me, sleep at night to be quite honest i i have yet to have a time where i put my head on the pillow there's been some times i've been kind of stressed with workload and everything else but there hasn't been a time where i put my head down and i've worried about you know where my next meal's coming from or how i'm going to service my debt because i always know that you know um since we've been doing this that there's a there's there's kind of a what do i want to say a way you know uh, I, there's 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 always a, a way to make revenue from this way, and there's less inputs into it. So I know that even in the worst years, that there's going to be ways that I'm going to service my debt and cover my debt. So that kind of that kind of I guess strikes at home to me is that you've just got to kind of be proactive and figure this out. And to me, if you're not really having to go to the bank and, and service huge debt, it's at the end of the day, you're probably living a little bit better life than somebody that's beholding to the bank making every last decision. So that's kind of where where I'm at. That's my own personal view. You know, I, everybody has their own views and can farm how they want. But, you know, for peace of mind, for me, it, it helps me sleep at night. and It helps me know too that I can walk in any day. And if I need, you know, if I need to buy some more animals or if I need another, you know, another pasture or something comes close, you know, across the road or something that works really well for operation that I could, you know, that I can get that, you know, too. So uh, it's not a perfect system, but it's been one that's kind of a, we talk about holistic planning, really the, the more you do in planning, the less you have to do later during the the season, whether it be your grazing season, whether it be your cropping season, the more you can do, you know, upfront with planning. The easier it is during the actual season that you don't have to make those tough decisions when you come up upon drought or you come up upon because you've already thought through these things, you know, during your downtime. If you have time during the winter or early spring, really be thinking about these things, you know. And and I'd even encourage guys now with wheat and stuff being done. And, you know, with fall harvest coming up, what are some things that you could probably plug in forage-wise, maybe rye, triticaleys, things like that for grazing, or even, you know, if nothing more, just for ground cover, you know, to keep that spray bill down. What, what can you be doing now? Think about that, you know, in those August, da- those down days in August before you really get busy with fall harvest. What's something I can do right behind the combine, or I can do this fall to make it easier for next spring and next summer? So, you know, just, just always be thinking about six months or a year down the road, what you can
0: be doing it's just thinking about you know we're recording this kind of toward the end of july just thinking about what most of my farmer friends are doing this time of year they're living at the lake riding around you know water skiing wakeboarding doing all kinds of fun stuff like that so where um where can we find you on social media you run uh you're on a facebook group and you're kind of active on twitter yes
1: yes uh probably probably uh the the I guess I, I don't want to say it. it's, it's interesting, but the, the best thing that I probably ever did was I created a Kansas, Nebraska uh, soil stewardship group. You can search for it on Facebook and, basically you know how i kind of talked about how a few of my friends were doing the cover cropping we had a real hard time um some of them had kids and with scheduling we had a real hard time actually physically sitting down and meeting outside of the dead of winter you know january february we could but during the growing season everybody had cool things going on but we had a hard time meeting up and going to everybody's farm and stuff so that actually kind of came out of just again it's for everybody if you're not in kansas or nebraska it's no sweat because we've got guys from australia and you know, Ukraine and everywhere, Africa, all over the place now, but, but it started out as Kansas, Nebraska, because we lived on the Kansas, Nebraska state line. And so all of my friends were in Kansas and Nebraska. So it was like a group of six of us. And we just post like cover crop pictures and just talk about it. Well, then it kind of got interesting in the fact that a few more people were like, Hey, what's this, you know, and they added on and they started, they were doing some grazing and stuff. Um, A huge resource that's on there is uh, Candy Thomas. If you don't know her, she's Uh, basically our whole region, Nebraska, Colorado, Kansas, uh, you know, uh, this whole Iowa, I think Missouri even now, I I can't say, she keeps getting more and more region all the time, but um, she's our soil health specialist that works for NRCS. And, you know, you want to talk about somebody that she just, knows. I mean, she's got such, she's a reader. Uh, She's read so much and she always is posting good stuff on there about, you know, soils and about improving soils and changing soils. She's been a huge resource on there. Um, I'm kind of a nerd and I'll read some crazy stuff, research papers and stuff and put that on there and I'm not afraid to try some new stuff once in a while you know, on a few acres just to see if it works. But, uh, you know, we're, we're always trying to post stuff on there about what's going on and it's for grazing, it's for cover cropping and it's a place to ask questions don't ever feel like you can't you know just ask hey I'm totally new and I have this problem because there's a lot of people across the region and I'm not going to say you're going to get one clear-cut answer too because if there's 20 people that give you an answer you might get 20 different answers but you can kind of glean from each one of those answers and kind of see what fits your context or what fits your your area so you know that's that's some place that I'm probably you know and you can friend me on Facebook Michael Thompson but anyway you know uh, uh that that soil health group has really been a, a, a cool thing to see how it's evolved um i don't even know there's two or three thousand people on it now so from all over the globe and you know it's it's cool that there's there's people that have real long experience with it too so you know i think that that would be that would be a cool thing for a lot of people if they're just dipping their toes in the water and they just want to see what's going on we welcome everybody you know the main thing is that You know, I, it's, it's kind of an environment where we don't really do the, the strife and the, the, you know, if you, you don't have positive things to say, you know, you might not be in there for a real long time. We try to keep it positive and everything else, but we do try to have discussion too. you know, real discussion about the pros and cons of different things. And everybody's had different experiences. So it's a great way to get experience. Uh, The other thing I'm on Twitter and this is terribly hard to find me on Twitter because it's got a whole bunch of numbers after Michael but it's Michael7254, I have to even look at it because I don't even know it anymore, 7254... Oh five six two. But anyway, uh,
0: if you look up Michael Thompson and, and you look at there, you'll find me. Um, I'll, I'll cheat. I'll put a link in the show notes to Michael's okay. Twitter profile. You you, you put it. You put a you put a link in
1: there because it's 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 even hard for me to do. You know, but uh, they deleted my one. It used to be Thompson Farm and Ranch, and they deleted that one. I I wasn't on it for a couple months. I was off social media for a while, and I went back, and it said that uh, I couldn't have access to my old account, so I had to get this new one. So that's long story short that's where I'm at but on on Twitter you know that the cool part about Twitter I think is that there's a lot of people that are in the soil health um, arena and they're posting a lot of stuff about how to make it work. And it's a really cool way to get people from all over the, all over the region that you wouldn't necessarily know. And like, you know, people like, you know, yourself, Brian, and, and, you know, people that have more of a grazing background, you can go there and you can see what people are doing on a grazing standpoint. And then you can flip right back over to maybe a cropping standpoint and see guys that are doing that. And it's really cool in the fact that I've had a lot of people on Twitter that I've met that weren't really interested in Cover crops. They were pretty much crop farmers, and all of a sudden they got interested. You know, they're they're asking more questions. I've seen them dip their toes into cover crops, and it's cool in the fact that they can ask questions. I can ask questions. It's kind of a big forum to ask questions, and it's really a neat area that you really find a lot of cool people out there that you would never have met otherwise. Um, I've got some friends on there I still haven't met in person, but, that you know, we're we we we're in chat groups, and we talk a lot about, you know, different things about cover crops and making them work across Kansas and down into Oklahoma and stuff. So um, that's probably the coolest thing is just kind of find some people and find kind of your little group. And then from your little group, you know, get on, you know, there's a lot of things, whether it be a text group, you know, group chat, you know, with texting or, you know, there's WhatsApp. There's a lot of different apps that you can have, like a, a kind of small group hosting, you know, where you can do that. Zoom's been another thing. And a lot, ever since, you know, COVID's hit, I don't think I need to tell anybody that if you haven't attended some kind of learning or Zoom meeting, you know, you've probably been living under a rock because there's all sorts of learning that's been going on. But it's been cool and the fact that the Zoom meetings have brought us even though we can't physically be sitting across the table from one another. It's like, it's, it's about as close of alternative as we can without physically being in the same room. And it's cool. in the fact that, you know, um, something that would have taken me 10 hours to a conference that's clear across the country, I could jump on a zoom and I can get with 10 of my friends from all over the country. Even we've even done it where I've had some friends from Western Australia and Australia jump on and we've been able to do, you know, either like through Facebook or through zoom or something. We've been able to do like a a video chat where we've been able to keep up with each other, you know, via that too. So um, that's really the neat part is that there's just so much knowledge. And I want to say the internet's a great tool out there that there's a lot of knowledge. And for the first time, there's a lot of papers out there that even if you're not a scientist, if you're interested in cover crops and interested in some of this stuff, there's a lot of things off Google Scholar and things like that. If you really want to delve in that there's a lot of knowledge that you can get out there. So um, the main thing is just talk, really talk to people. The the bigger your net is, the more you cast your net out there, the more friends. If you, you know, if you talk to Joe, maybe Joe doesn't have the answer, but he's been talking to Tim over here, you know, and and you know, some other area Tim in South Dakota knows, and he'll direct you towards Tim and you're like, "Hey, I don't know you, but you know, you, my friend Joe says that he's been talking to you about this." And then pretty soon you get to know Tim just as well and you know, you start uh you start getting a lot more uh a lot more open net type of policy where you have a larger, larger uh, community to ask questions to. So it kind of takes that anytime you can kind of shave that learning experiences off. It's a good thing. So
0: we're all about being lifelong learners and, and never, never stop learning. You know, it's, it's something that really sets a lot of us apart in a regenerative agriculture sphere because we're always looking for a better way to do things. And with that, I think that's a great place to end. Michael, we sure appreciate your time today. CK, you've been over there awful quiet. Anything to add, real quick? No, but I could just see why you are so good with kindergartners, though, because you just have the energy this whole time, and it's been it's been really good. So.
1: Well, I, I really feel like I, you know, it's something I'm passionate about because I've had so many guys help me and, you know, I've offered them money. I've offered them, you know, I'll stay here and help you, you know, do harvest or do something, right. you know, and they're like, they're like, no, no, no. You know, this is just something I've learned. I just want you to do the same and pay it forward and help another person on down the road. If you've got a kid or, or, you know, even somebody older than you that, you know, a neighbor or somebody that wants to make the the jump and, to me, that's what it's all about, trying to help people, because the more people that we get, you know, doing this, it's just going to help us with with rainfall, with our whole region, you know, receiving, you know, better rainfall, um, being better crops, better grass. If right. we can grow all these things, we're just going to have a better, you know, a better better area. You know, I, I really, truly believe that, you know, good management can, can solve a lot of the current problems problems that we have. So I don't want to get any deeper into that, but I thank you guys. It was awesome. I I enjoyed it. And thank you very very much for having me and I enjoyed it. So anybody has any questions, reach out to me. I'm always available. So
0: thanks again, Michael, and have a great day.
1: Yep. You too. Thank you.